the impudence, the audacity, the unmitigated gall of those knuckleheads of liberty podcasters daring to voice opinions outside the mainstream of accepted thought. Listen, if you dare, it's angry, it's funny, it's even sometimes sad, but it's always based on freedom and justice, as you will see. Here's our host, Jason McPhee. Welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty. We're coming at you on uh, September 7th. Uh, 20, 2022. Uh, somehow we have managed to get through almost two years of the Biden administration. I don't know how we've done it, but somehow we're still standing. Uh, but we're going to take a break from that. Uh, we have a, a great guest today, uh, and we're going to focus on education. But before we do that, let me introduce you to our panel. In our upper left-hand corner, we have Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. And our special guest today is Mike McShane of Ed Choice. Uh, and they are an organization that focuses on school choice. And uh, we're going to let him talk to you about that. Uh, and my name is Jason McPhee. So uh, before we, uh, I, I guess as we get into that, you know, this is one of the most important topics to us on the show. Uh, gosh, as far as liberty goes, I, I can't think of anything more important than breaking the monopoly on uh, yeah government monopoly on education. Uh, that seems to be where all the bad ideas flow from. So it's not necessarily fo forcing uh, certain topics into the schools. It's just about getting choice. And so uh, with that, uh, Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about your organization and, and what you guys do over there? Yeah, for sure. And thanks so much for for having me on the podcast. It's great. I love the the name. As soon as I saw the name of the podcast, I'm like, these are guys I want to talk to. This sounds great. So so yeah, so we're, we're this group called Ed Choice. Um, we're a nonprofit based in Indianapolis, Indiana. We were previously known as the Freedman Foundation for Education Choice, founded by an, uh, the legacy foundation of Drs. Milton and Rose Friedman. Many of you mm. uh, listeners may be familiar with Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, you know, a designer of the Free to Choose series, which was super popular on PBS. Um, lesser known is his wife, Rose, who was quite an economist in her own right, um, but yes. unfortunately... When you happen to be married to one of the most brilliant economists of all time, you get second billing, which is unfortunate. But anyway, <laughs> yes. and yes. in a sort of very interesting thing, after the Freedmans passed away, they actually put a limit on how long we could use their name after their deaths. I think they had seen lots of other foundations where the children or grandchildren of the the, the folks who's who's uh, who the foundation was named after went in some crazy direction, and I think. Um, they would be spinning in their grave if suddenly, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years time, it somehow became, you know, the Friedman Foundation for Socialism or something like that. So they <laughs> yeah, said, listen, yeah. <laughs> we're not around to exert, we're not around to exert control anymore. So I think we had five years or something and it was like five years and then you have to come up with your own. Name. So we decided to get straight to the point and it, we're ed choice. And so we are a mix of an advocacy and research organization devoted to trying to expand school choice. So we deeply believe that parents know their children best, um, and we would like to see them have the widest variety of possible options um, to educate their children. So we are not anti-anything. If folks want to send their children to what we would call like traditional public schools, and that's the best environment for them, and they love them, and their kid is thriving, dynamite. That's awesome. If they want to go to private schools, whether they're religious or secular, dynamite. If they want to go to public charter schools, 
dynamite. They want to homeschool. Great. They want to find some other combination of these things. Great. So we do a mix of advocacy work where we actually work with generally with kind of local stakeholders to help them become better advocates for themselves, their families, their communities. Um, and then we do stuff like what I do, which is research about the questions surrounding school choice um, and the education system more broadly. Hmm. So Mike, the um, recently in Arizona, they just passed what we think is the, um, the biggest school choice um, um, program in the United States, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, and West Virginia may be heading in that direction. We're not sure about that as yet. So what do you guys think about this? Is this where, is this the kind of things that you guys want to see instituted all over the United States? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you look at a state like Arizona, they have made commitments across their education system towards educational choice. Within their traditional public schooling system, they have a big sort of open enrollment policy where students are able to enroll across district lines. So you want to go to the traditional public school, but it's the one in your neighboring district. In most states around the country, too bad. If you're not zoned, um, residentially zoned for that school, you can't attend it. Um, that's not the case in Arizona. Now, there are other states that do that, but Arizona has made a commitment to that for a long time, and tens of thousands of children participate in that. They find the public school that fits them. I think state-wise, they have the largest market share for charter schools. I want to say probably now more than 20% of students attend public charter schools. Some of the best um, charter school networks, Great Hearts and Basis, were started in Arizona. And so they have this robust market there. And then as you mentioned, they've been making a ton of strides in private school choice. So they have a long-running school voucher and tuition tax credit programs that have been in existence for more than a decade now. But in this last legislative session, they made this big leap to create a basically universal education savings account program, which takes a child's education funding and puts it in a flexible use spending account. So historically, even folks like me who are big into private school choice, we talked a lot about things like school vouchers. And if you think a school voucher is just a voucher is like a coupon, right? Yeah. You Money gets put into it and you can exchange it at a school for one education, right? But right. you have to go to one provider. It has to all be done together. An education savings account, more like an HSA, for those of you that have it around your health insurance, puts that money into a, an account that has lots of different potential uses. So you don't just have to go to one provider. You may use some of that money towards <laughs> private school tuition, but other stuff can be spent on tutoring or services for students with special needs or curriculum um, uh, resources that you might need along those sorts of things. So personally, that's the way this needs to go right? More flexibility around funding. Put that money in an account that parents have control over, and it's perfectly fine. Limit what it can be spent on, right? You can't, you know, take it to a 7-Eleven and buy a fifth of whiskey or something. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> it needs to only be spent on educational, you know, suppliers um, that are in there, and that's not hard to do to figure those things out. Um, and then allow parents to pick and choose. Again, a lot of folks will probably choose private school tuition, and they'll take all of their money and they'll send it to one place. A-okay, that's fine. Yes. But a fair number of folks will say, look, we need to pick and choose. We've got this great tutor here. We've got this great therapist here. We've got this great um, sports academy here. Um, and they can really put together a dynamite, customized education for their child. I, so I, you, 
I wanted to follow up real quick with something. You mentioned a couple of schools that you thought were, uh, you know, great charter school examples and stuff. What's it? What, what what kind of metric do you guys look at when you're trying to decide if something is successful as far as a, uh, a you know, a, a charter school option or private school option? You know, the the sort of free marketer in me, <laughs> the first thing that I look at is does demand exceed supply? Right. Okay. So chances are, you know, you can what what's the uh, was it Bob Marley who said, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Yeah. If we see these schools that consistently have massive waiting lists and when they open new branches, they have massive waiting lists of them. To me, before I've looked at a single number, before I've looked at anything, I think, you know, there may be something going on there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Generally, people people don't queue up around the block for something terrible, or, or at least if they do it, they only do it once. Yeah. So as as Milton like Friedman this, would always say, uh, how people are voting with their feet. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so the first exactly. thing that I look at is people voting with their feet. And again, we've seen this for decades in traditional public schools, right? Where you have dynamite public school systems that exist. People move there. People of means move there. So you see that sort of same thing that's there. Now, at the same time, I do look at other metrics. I don't necessarily weight them. You know, you, you want to get a kind of full picture of what's going on there. But I do look at things like standardized test scores. I do look at things like, you know, math and reading. You look at things like students taking college entrance exams. Are they taking ACT, SAT, et cetera? Um, you, you look at things like graduation rates. And, and so so it's a holistic picture that, that you want to look at when you see these schools. But the biggest one for me that you just see around these places is just demand, you know, that these schools start in new states and certain things. It's like, oh, we have thousands of people that want a hundred slots. Well, one of the reasons why I brought up metrics too is just because, you know, if we have school choice, but if in the end government defines what schools you can choose and if they're doing it off of some metric, are, are we really getting the choice that we want? I mean, are we really getting to vote with our feet or are we just sort of getting maybe, uh, you know, maybe the government, preferred choice. No, totally. So this is a huge, this is a really interesting question because, you know, America in many ways is kind of an outlier in how little school choice people have. The norm in sort of most Western countries is for parents to have many more choices. You're not geographically linked somewhere. There are religious options, non-religious options and others, but the sort of crux that you came to um, that the people who only take a sort of cursory glance at that fail to see is it's like, well, some of these countries, some of these other places have what we would think of as more school choice. But if you have a kind of nationalized curriculum, right, where like everybody has to basically teach the same things, or if everyone has to take the same set of exams, that does narrow really what you can do. So it's a lot of it is sort of on what dimensions do people have freedom? Like, do you have sort of curricular freedom where like we want to teach math differently? Um, do you have sort of, I don't know, your ethos freedom where you could be religious or non-religious or, or subscribe to any sort of philosophy, even sort of outside of religion? So I think it's a really interesting question to say that there's so many dimensions on which freedom in education exists. Um, and, and how do we think through that from a public policy perspective? Do, um, do you, um, Mike, do you guys get involved in litigation at all? We do. Yeah, we have. We've started actually a whole new legal center that exists within our organization that gets involved in, in, in these cases. Sure. I see. 
And, and uh, to follow up on Leon's question, so you, you yeah, I guess you help out on litigation. Hey, let's say another state, like, you know, God forbid, California, <laughs> you know, people ever here want school choice. How would they, somebody say in a, in a county that was, you know, really interested in this, what would they do to try and, and get help to push this way? Would they, would they contact your organization sure. directly or do you guys... You know, I and, and and do you guys just provide data, or do you guys actually provide uh, other resources as well? Totally. So we have a couple different kind of wings to our organization. One of them is the 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 part that I'm in is called research and thought leadership, which is sort of what you were talking about. Data. We do, we do research on things. We do polling. We do surveys. We do you know evaluations, all that sort of stuff. Kind of traditional research in the field of school choice. Another area that we have is called our training and outreach. Um, and these are folks who put on events or they either participate in events, they put on events. So these are trainings for whether these could be parent advocates, whether these could be legislators, or they could be for folks who are interested in advancing school choice, get help give them some of the knowledge and skills that they need to be better advocates for it. And then we have, we have our legal center as well that sort of defends school choice programs as their challenge in the courts. And then we have a sort of state initiatives team that actually goes out and, and leads advocacy efforts in states. Now, because we're not uh, a, an organization with infinite resources, we have to be kind of strategic about what states we choose to work in. And as much as I would love <laughs> California to be one of those things, I don't know if it passes the old cost-benefiting sure. test, but <laughs> I think where folks in California or other states where it's a... Uh, shall we say more of an uphill battle would be the yes. gentle way of putting that getting involved with a lot of our training and outreach people. So maybe what it is, is coming to a parent advocate training, coming to a media training, coming to those sorts of things to help become a better kind of grassroots activist and work on changing hearts and minds about the issue over a longer period of time, because you know, that's unfortunate, fortunately or unfortunately, maybe I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, I think it's actually the right way things should work is that you got to convince people of things. And you have mm. to do the kind of hard work of of explaining the benefits and, and costs and all of those sorts of things. Um, and so that would probably be for, for folks in California or things like that, getting involved at that sort of level would probably be where you want to start. So you talk about grassroots um, activism. <clears throat> do, do you guys actually get involved in political campaigns? So we are a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. So we cannot, you know, we don't um, endorse candidates. We don't really get involved in direct electioneering. What we tend to do is try and work with local coalitions that are trying to advance school choice and give them the resources, training, data, all of the stuff that they need to be better at what they do. Because frankly, you know, School systems function differently in different states. The, the the policies that might work in one state are not necessarily great for another state. So we really try to let our local partners lead and say, these are the problems that we have. These are the solutions that we wanted to, to come up with. And so we support them in that. We try not to be kind of top down explaining to them what you know what's right and, and what's best. And then give them those sort of resources so that they can do those sorts of things. But it's not something that we would directly kind of intervene in. I see. Well, Mike, what are some of the uh, examples, I guess, of successes you guys have had in in pushing school choice in the in the United States and anywhere else, too, for that matter? Sure. I mean, I, some of the places that you mentioned earlier, Arizona, Wisconsin, 
West Virginia. These have been big pushes um, in the last couple of years. Indiana, obviously, we're located in Indianapolis. We've played a really large role in the big expansions of school choice that we've seen there. So across all those places, and it's been a really interesting journey. I mean, EdChoice is now 25 years old. And if you think about it, you know, the, 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 the first kind of modern school voucher program starts in the early 90s in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Cleveland, Ohio is added a few years later. But the real kind of growth in school choice programs, I think probably when, when EdChoice was founded, there was one, maybe two school choice programs uh, in states across the country. And I believe it's, it's a good problem to have that I keep losing count of it. I think we're over 70 now um, okay. in 25 or 30 different states. So it's been a long, um, a long journey. Uh, and a lot of these things started with very small programs. They were a pilot program here or a, you know, very limited student populations there. But one of the beautiful things about advocating for school choice is that it's this wonderful kind of catalytic process that when 500 families get something, there are 500 more families that see it and say, oh my goodness, like we want that. How can we expand this? How can we keep it going? So it's been starting with relatively small programs and growing and growing and growing. Arizona is a great example of this, where some of its first programs enrolled just a couple hundred kids. And now 10 or 15 years later, it's something that goes statewide. Yeah. So do you do you all um do you all run up against? I know you you don't get directly into politics or, or electioneering as you as you termed it. Do you all guys run into the the teachers unions anywhere in your in your work? And by, by yeah. the way, I was just going to ask about that too. Who are the yes. usual suspects? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. You know, we we think of them as like the um the alphabet soup organizations, right? So you have the teachers unions, the administrators unions, the school boards associations, the retired teachers organizations, but those tend to be, you know, um they all kind of sing out of the same hymn book. But yeah, they're they that's we 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 run into them quite frequently. I see. Okay. What what is their main thrust? I mean, are they, is it just is it just that they're really more about the uh, I, I don't know, just about it being a jobs program? Or are they are they trying to say that there's something specific they want taught in schools that school choice just wouldn't get to? I because I, I it, to me I I can't to to me it seems like a, just a track record of failure that we're seeing out of the public schools and I, you know why this horrendous fight other than just protect jobs. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. Yes. Look, so, so we can take this two ways. We'll do the, uh, let's be, we'll start by being charitable. Um, and then we can, um, perhaps take a different path, but I think that the most, <laughs> if we want to be charitable to people who think differently than us, and I, I want people to be charitable towards me. So I try to be charitable towards people who think it, um, I think that there are a group of people who have a kind of philosophical affinity for the idea of public education. This idea that stretches back to folks like Horace Mann and others in the 1840s that we will have, uh, we are a nation with these common schools where all of our school children will come together in the same schools. They will be inculcated with these democratic values, with what it means to be an American, um, the sort of egalitarian, all of the things that, 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 um, has made America great. Um, what, what rich or poor, black, white, everybody will come together in the same schools and they'll learn how to get along with one another. And that's what we should be striving for. This kind of uniform set of common schools that everybody belongs to and everybody attends and everybody learns the same thing. And that will lead to a more harmonious, successful society. So I think a lot of people believe that. Um, and so they have problems with anything that deviates from that. Okay. 
So there, I don't think anyone can say that I wasn't charitable towards that. <laughs> Um, right um, now, tell us what you really think. If you said if you said me up this morning, I'll tell you what I really think. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so the thing is, right, is that I think that those that that those people are nostalgic for something that never existed. Um, that these schools d- don't exist uh, for lots and lots of reasons, big and small. But this idea that American public schools are this great melting pot is wrong. This idea that they that they bring people together is wrong. The thing, oh, like, none of that stuff is true, right? So, like, the schools don't match that vision. Um, and while okay, fine, you can continue to fight for this vision that never existed and never will. I think looking for a more one that's actually more in line with American values is a more pluralistic education system. We are a pluralistic nation that believes in these kind of basic fundamental freedoms and, and for people to pursue the things that they, they think are best. Um, and so, so that's like the philosophical piece of it. But, but the other one that I think you brought up is also true. Teachers unions, administrators unions are organizations that exist to protect the interests of their members. And personally, and this is maybe where I'm different from other people. Like, I don't really get that upset by by them. Like, yeah, that's what they do. They're going to try and get the deal that's best for teachers or that's best for administrators. And once you sort of just get that, and when they sp- speak sort of highfalutin things about how they went, you know that it's not true. You say, hey, listen, you're trying to get the best deal for adults. I'm trying to get the best deal for kids. So this is what we're going to have to argue about. And so that's where I think, I think ultimately that's what heavy people see this in terms of funding. They see it in terms, because you hear the, 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 the language around it, right? You're taking money from schools. We'll have to fire teachers, all of those sorts of things. The, the very rhetoric that they choose to use belies the things that matter the most to them, which is money. You know, you know, Mike, but you know, even if we can take the chart of a view here, now I don't, but let us assume that let us assume that we could, okay. How could anyone deny the failure, the disaster, the national disgrace that we are seeing in the public schools today? How could anyone deny it? And, and speaking I mean, before you get going with that too, James, can you pull up the visual? Because uh, when you say, how can anyone, they, Ed Choice actually does polling as well. So uh, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Yes. How could anyone d- deny the failure, especially within the urban centers of America? So even if we take the chart of a view, we cannot deny the failure that is ongoing. And we cannot deny that the, the destruction that is ongoing in the next generation. So this is the, my difficulty with 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 um with this whole the zip code tyranny, as as Jason calls it. This is where you are tied to a school because of where you live. And I I really wonder about these things. How could people be so delusional about what's going on and still hold on to this utopian view of where they want to take us in terms of education for the next generation? Yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> it keeps it keeps running into the reality. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and and, and uh, you know, maybe it's not quite as uh, bleak as you're saying, Liam, because at least according to these opinion polls that uh, Ed Choice has here, um, at least most people don't think it's going in the right direction. Uh, so it looks like you know, uh, uh, this is this one is by uh, local state nationwide uh, do you feel that it's going in the right direction and um it looks like it's it's uh 
you know, most people aren't thinking that way. So uh, is, is that what you guys are getting out of this, Mike? Or Yeah, for sure. And if you look on those, you know, the parents are a little bit higher. You know, we think of, I think, uh, if sort of we, we pull a nationally representative sample of Americans every month. And you can see on this, I think for all Americans, it's about a third of Americans think it's in the right direction. When you go to parents, it's a little bit higher. It's about half of parents think um, that their local school district is, is heading in the right direction. It gets worse for states, worse for the federal government. But it is important to remember that for some people, the public education system works well, right? And I tend to think that it is because those are the people who have choice, right? So if you are a wealthier person in America, you can choose to live uh, in an area zone for better schools or schools that are ideologically aligned to what you want to say. Um, you also always have the option for exit. Hey, we're going to give these public schools a try. And if we don't like it, we'll send our kids to private school or we'll homeschool. We'll figure something out. Not under the same pressure that families that don't have those financial means or live in an area that even if you move, the schools aren't still going to be um, going as well. So, so I think that's the big thing whenever we talk about school choice in America, and I think it's something that the that the, the debate really suffers from, is we we have these, you know, we talk about, oh, is there going to be school choice? Like, is California going to have school choice or not, right? We have the pro-school choice people and the anti-school choice people. Like, well, actually, California already has a ton of school choice. It doesn't have policies that advance school choice, but it has a whole lot of people making school choices. The question when it comes to school choice policy is who, who is going to be able to choose where their children go to school? Is it only going to be something that wealthy and an upper? And unfortunately, as with the cost of things going up, it's not even just middle class people, sort of upper middle class and upper class folks, middle class people are getting squeezed out of this as well. Are they the only people that are going to be able to choose? Are they going to be that kind of third of people that are satisfied while 70% of people are not? Or are we going to expand that set of who's going to be free to choose where their children go to school? Well, you know, Mike, is, I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, we're, we're starting to get close to the end of the show. And one thing I wanted to ask you about before we get to the end as well is, is uh, speaking of restricting choice, I mean, COVID, especially in California, really limited choice. I mean, they literally just shut people out of schools. And mm -hmm. a lot of people we're finding out now just lost an a year or two of education. What, what, what have you guys seen as far as uh, COVID policy affecting school choice? Yeah, I mean, look, I, from, an, from an advocacy perspective, I think COVID policy really woke a lot of parents up to just how their interests and the interests of their administrators and sometimes teachers and others were not aligned with one another. Um, I think a lot of folks believed that they had much more say in their schools than they actually did. And COVID made that very clear. It also showed to them how really not resilient our education system is that when something like that gets thrown at it, that it just sort of crumbled under it and continued to crumble even when hundreds of billions of federal dollars were put into it and months and years of time passed that these schools were still struggling to kind of deliver on, on some basic things that we expected of them. So I think it really opened a lot of people's eyes. We've seen big increases in, in states passing school choice laws. Like, I don't know if that happens absent the pandemic. I think a lot of parents wouldn't have really realized sort of the state that their, their kids' schools were in um, without that happening. Um, and I think it also just showed so many people, wow, we need to have more options. We need to have a more resilient education system. We need to try and find schools where the adults and children's interests are aligned with one another. Because if we don't, exactly what you said just last week, 
the National Assessment for Educational Progress came out. It's a, a longitudinal test that's been going since the early 70s. We saw the first declines, massive declines in, in reading and math. Um, I think the biggest declines in reading since uh, since 1990, I think, the only declines yeah, in math something, something we've like seen. That. Yeah, massive declines. Um, so just a, just a tragedy and something that I think if people would have had more choices and could have had exit options could have ended up differently. Well, you know, that that's an excellent uh, spot to leave this on. More choice. You know, my gosh, how much better we could have all been off uh, if we had a little more choice going into this whole COVID pandemic. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyways, that's that's just about the end of the time for this show. Um, we are going to have you back on another podcast as well, where we talk about some educational issues. So if you like this one, please tune into that one as well. Um, but uh, thanks again, Mike, so much for joining us on this one. And until the next time, stay free. Indeed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always. Thank you for listening to the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast.